Hey, good morning, everybody. Great to see you guys here in the auditorium, and uh, hello to everybody online and out in our tent outdoor venue. My name is Monty. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and uh, super excited about uh, getting into our passage today. I, I want to just say a couple of things before we get into the text. Uh, honestly, just as I was listening to that song, um, man, I just thought if you're here, if you're watching online, if you're out in the tent and you don't know what that was just talking about, if you've never entrusted your life to a Savior who laid down his life so that you could be forgiven, man, I just want to beg you to trust in him today. Just all you have to do is just say, Lord, I can't do it on my own. I need you to do for me what I can't do for myself. Would you forgive me and make me new? And he will do it. He promises to do that. So just felt like I needed to, to say that. That was so encouraging to sing those words and be reminded of that good news. Um, secondly, I want to mention... Uh, we just finished the week before last a series. Um, we talk about a lot of connections in our church, one of those being connecting inward with our gifting. We want to discover and understand and apply the gifting that God has put in us. And so we did a four-week series called Re-Gifting. And uh, we're going to be focusing on this uh, for the next several months, actually throughout this whole ministry year. So um, we have set up a resource page on our website. Here's a, a splash just of our, our, our front page. And at the top, you'll see that red ribbon. And it just says resources for spiritual gifting. So all of our messages from that series are located there. Outlines are located there. A couple of the charts that we showed during our messages and then we're going to continue to expand that page as we go throughout this year in, in various phases of understanding and applying our gifting. So I want to let you know that that's available for you. All you got to do is click on that red banner at the top, and it will take you there. Um, okay, so if you look at your outline, uh, top of the page there, the message today is about God and government. I thought, how timely could that be? <laughs> Something is happening on Tuesday. I don't think it's any big deal, but uh, just an election. Um, you know, we, we were actually, uh, we huddle and pray before every worship gathering uh, morning, just as we kind of figure out what we're doing and uh, make sure everything's on target. And um, Jeff was praying this morning, and he just prayed that there must be a, a great deal of anxiety around what's going to happen on Tuesday. And, you know, there is so much about this world and about elections and everything else that's completely out of our control. But we know and love and serve a God who is in complete control. And this passage is going to remind us of that. It's going to remind us that no matter what happens on Tuesday, it's going to be okay. Because we serve a God that is in control of all of history. So I hope this will be an encouragement to you. It sure has been for me. Um, with that said, let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 20. And uh, we're in our second week of a series we're calling Lord in the Flesh. 
And um, we've arrived at the final week of Jesus' life on earth, as uh, Luke tells the story. And what a journey it's been. We've been in this book for a while now, but we've been following Jesus and his disciples to Jerusalem. And he's there. He is in town and he is engaging with a lot of different kinds of people there. We know that in just days, he is going to lay his life down. He's going to be crucified on a cross. But they didn't know that. These people are just dealing with this man who shows up and he's done miracles and he's wise, he teaches, he's a leader, but he's a different kind of leader and they're just not quite sure what to do with him. It it struck me that it, it it has been, but it certainly is still so confounding how this man can have such authority and carry it with such humility at the same time. I just think they had no idea what to do with him because of that. Now, he was a polarizing figure from the very beginning of his ministry. I don't know if you remember. It was a long time ago in our, in our series. But um, in Luke 4, he goes back to Nazareth, his hometown. He goes into the synagogue. He picks up the scroll, Isaiah 61. He reads it. It is foreshadowing, previewing him as Messiah. And he sits down and says, what I just read, it was fulfilled in your hearing. And we're told, Luke tells us, that they spoke well of him. They marveled at him in that moment. They were just awestruck. Then he said, knowing (laughs) depraved hearts... (laughs) You guys are going to be kind of those people who are saying, heal thyself, physician. And went on to say that a prophet is never acceptable in his hometown. And on a dime, the crowd turned. It says that they were filled with wrath. They ran him out of town, took him to the edge of a cliff, hoping that they could throw him off. And he made his way out and escaped Nazareth. So he has always been this polarizing figure, drawing some to him, often those in need of all kinds of healing. Um, We're told again and again that, that sinners and tax collectors love to be around Jesus. He was like a magnet to those folks. But there were also other folks that were repelled by him. They were irritated by his presence. They literally hated him. And um, for our purposes this morning, I want to call them a religious cabal. Um, If you like any of like the 007 or MI6 or whatever, all that kind of stuff, you know, there's always this cabal out there, right? This, This conspiracy that's happening that nobody knows who the players are and who's in control, who has power, and who's going after the good guys. But we just know they're there. Well, this is no, cons- this is no conspiracy theory. There is a group of religious leaders that hate Jesus with everything in them. And they are committed, as we began to learn last week, to taking Jesus out any way they can. This is a prideful power-hungry group of religious leaders who are plotting 
against Jesus. And we uh, are introduced to them this week in verse 20. I want to read verse 19 as well. This is from uh, Chad's passage last week. Uh, Jesus is confronting these leaders And uh, he told a parable that confronted them, and here is how they responded. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived, rightly, that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So there was this teaching moment. Jesus confronts them. They get lit up like crazy want to go after him, but choose to withhold. Now we get to our passage today, verse 20. So instead, they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. There is the the conspiracy coming together. Uh, Let me identify a few things that are mentioned just in this first verse as we get a context for for what's going to happen here. The reference to they, and we get this also from Mark and from Matthew. This same story is told in both of those places. But um, prior to what we're reading today, you basically had a whole variety of religious leaders. But there are going to be two in particular that are going to be sent as spies, that's the they, and these are Pharisees and Herodians. You might think of them as ancient right-wingers and left-wingers. They hate each other, but they have a common enemy, Jesus. And so they're going to unify in this moment to try and take him down. It says that they watched, which is, again, it's surveillance. They watched closely. It's a literal stakeout, trying to uh, catch Jesus doing something out of line. It says that there were spies that were sent, and these were men who were literally hired to lie in wait. It's an ambush on Jesus, and they want to harm him in the worst sort of way. Now, these spies who showed up, it says they pretended to be sincere. The literal Greek word there is the one we get hypocrisy from. So these are pure blood hypocrites. Duplicity. They're they're giving one impression and they have completely different intentions in mind. Their intentions are to catch Jesus in something that he said. We're going to find out the significance of that in just a moment. But the idea here is to take hold of, to grasp I honestly thought this was like the original cancel culture. It's just like they're sitting there waiting to see something pop up on their feed that they can therefore bring before everybody else's attention and get someone dismissed. That's exactly what they're trying to do here. Um, At worst, if they are able to catch Jesus speaking wrongly, they can discredit him before his followers. Um, you'll see how that works with the question that they ask. But, but even more than that, they'd love to get him arrested and then crucified by Rome as an insurrectionist. That's what they're trying to accomplish. I want to make one observation about this cabal. 
they have more biblical knowledge, Old Testament, than anyone on earth. And yet they're the very ones that are going after the Messiah. That ought to cause us great caution and pause, sobriety. Biblical knowledge without heart life application and subsequent transformation does little more than blind us to what is actually true. So, spies are in place. They're in the presence of Jesus. The plan begins to unfold. And their strategy is to get Jesus on what's called the horns of a dilemma. I want you to imagine two bulls on either side. Both are bad choices. That's the offering that they give Jesus. Look at verse 21. So they, that is the spies, asked him, that is Jesus, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. So verse 22, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? The spies lead with empty flattery. They're, they're playing to the crowd. Um, Proverbs 29.5, which they would have known, says this, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Um, the crowd may not realize it, but certainly Jesus must know what's going on. They call him teacher, but they don't respect his instructions. They didn't come to learn. They came to uh, take him out. So they're trying to, to give a good impression to the crowd. Ironically, everything that they say about Jesus is actually true. They, they say that he speaks and teaches rightly. We've read again and again and again how the crowds recognized the uniqueness of just how true all that Jesus said was. He showed no partiality. Everyone literally was welcomed into his presence uh, except for hypocritical religious leaders. And then lastly, they said he truly taught the ways of God. So they accurately describe Jesus, but that's not what they're there to do. They want to trip him up. And so they ask this question, is it lawful for us, all of us Jews, to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, it seems like a simple enough question, and it's a yes or a no, which that's part of the design. We'll get you to say yes or no, and both answers are bad for you. It's a lose-lose, and it's a win for us. What they're asking is, does Old Testament law prohibit us from paying a tribute tax to secular government? Obviously, they're under the occupation of Rome, and Rome has taxes that are owed to them. And so they're putting Jesus in a, a tough spot here, again, on the horns of a dilemma, with two options. If he says no, if he says no, um, you shouldn't pay your taxes to Rome, then he's an insurrectionist. And that is punishable by death. Rome will just take him out. So that's a bad answer. But if he says yes... 
then just imagine you're a Jew under the oppressive rule of Rome. You hate Rome. And one of the reminders again and again and again that they are in authority, that they are in control, is you pay them taxes over and over again. Now, this tax that they're asking about, they they had a variety of taxes. This in particular is a tribute or a poll tax. Guess where this money goes? Directly to Caesar. This isn't like, you know, on my home or my property or my possessions or whatever. This is just, hey, I just want to remind you, Caesar's in control. And you're going to fund his life. You're going to fund his buildings. You're going to fund his military. Whatever Caesar wants, you're going to pay for it. They hated him for that. And if Jesus says, yeah, I think you guys ought to pay that tax. What do you think Jews are going to think of him as a Messiah? Now remember, in their frame of mind, the Messiah, he's a deliverer. And who is he going to deliver Israel from? Rome! So if he says, yeah, pay your tax, your tribute to Caesar, that's a pretty weak Messiah. He's probably not going to be able to do much delivering if that's the case. So it looks like Jesus is in an impossible situation. But to everyone's surprise, he escapes the trap and offers them a brilliant civics lesson about God and government. And, he, and that's what he's going to say. Hey, everybody, it's God and government in that order. That's a great phrase to remember on Tuesday. Pick, pick up with me in verse 23. Jesus perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now he recognizes their craftiness, and as readers, that just tells us all of that flattery and everything else that was going on beforehand, that was just full of treachery. Jesus specifically asks for a coin called a denarius, which is the coin of the realm. It's an average day's wage, so it's just very common currency, but it does bear the image of the Caesar, and it's, it's on purpose. It reminds everybody that carries that coin around, this is who's in control, and you may have that coin in your pocket, but Caesar has your life. He controls what goes on around you, what happens. The coin, the denarius, was specifically used for this poll tax or this tribute that was paid to Caesar. Uh, I love what Professor Daryl Bach says about this coin and what it signified. He says, the financial tribute to Caesar was an emotional issue for Jews since it pictured in concrete economic terms Israel's subjection to Rome. Such sovereignty was a fact of life that they carried around in their pockets every day. 
That was by design. He wanted them to remember. So who would have ever dreamed that the Messiah would have recommended paying a tax? Because he kind of did that, right? He said, hey, you got this coin in your pocket. Whose picture's on it? Caesar. Well, then give back to Caesar what's his. But also, remember, give to God what is his. So now they're going to have to figure out, well, which is which? How do I order these things that I have as part of life? They might be asking Is Jesus on our side or on Rome's side? I mean, if he's on our side, shouldn't he be anti-Rome? Isn't that kind of how we think about things these days, that it's just sides? That you're either for or against whatever I'm for or against? We're either in the same tribe or we're enemies? That's just kind of natural, isn't it, to think that way? And it's like Jesus just pushes right through that says, I'm not going to make it that easy for you. You're going to have to listen and sort this out God's way. God's rule is absolute. It is unrivaled. And it is not subject to anyone's opinion but God's. Never changes. Very consistent. Very reliable. So with that in mind, God says, if you're wondering how to relate to a government that doesn't share your beliefs or values, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, that's challenging. Like, how do we figure that out? Well, what is that? I, I want to offer a couple of thoughts about government, and then I want to look at a passage that I think will really help us. First of all, the purpose of government, I'm going to mention four things. There's probably others, but it is to preserve order, to restrain evil, to protect the population, and to promote general well-being. We would just generally say any government on earth, those are four good purposes for it to exist on behalf of its people. Now, government has tools that it can use to accomplish those purposes. So here's some tools that our government has at its disposal. It has legislation. Laws can be made, right? Laws also can be enforced. There's law enforcement. So there's an entity in our government that makes sure everybody is following the rules. When someone doesn't follow the rules, there's adjudication. There is a setting where a rule breaker can be judged, guilty or not guilty. A government has currency at its disposal that it can use for its purposes. And then finally, it has a military. So every government has those tools and uses them either for good or not in terms of their role as an authority over a nation. Now with all of that in mind, let's really get at this idea of rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And there's really no better passage than Romans 13, 1 through 7 to help us with that. Um, I'll mention that I taught this passage when we went through Romans. This was back in 2014 and 2015. But if you'll go back on our Vimeo uh, page, you can find that message and get a lot more detail on this passage. But I want to read this to us, and then I want to make some observations that hopefully we can apply. So Romans 13, beginning in verse 1. 
let every person, just let that sink in, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Verse 7. Pay to all that is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? And those thoughts aren't the thoughts that come to my mind when I go with my gut. I I usually go a lot of other places. But this is clear direction inspired by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul to help us think about properly responding to worldly authority. So let me make some observations. First of all, every person is to submit to their governing authorities. There's no exceptions given here. It applies to all. There's no single form or system of government mentioned. So it's not as if you can say, well, because I'm under this kind of government, I'm therefore exempt. If I were under that one, I would be fine, but but this I'm not. It's a universal. Authorities in this passage don't reference just institutions, so it's not just a faceless entity, it's very personal, um, referring even to um, specific positions of power. These people who are in authority are in those positions by God's appointment. And if this passage didn't say that clearly enough, um, just reference the book of Daniel. I want to read a couple of things that Daniel says about those in authority in Babylon uh, in his day. Chapter 2, verse 21, he says, He, that is God, removes kings and sets up kings. That seems pretty straightforward. In 237, He writes, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. So he's referring to an earthly king. Saying, You got all of that from the the king of kings. And then 417, The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. So God is obviously 
intimately involved in putting leaders in place, regardless of what they might think about themselves and how they got there. Obeying the law, paying taxes, showing respect and honor, those are practical, concrete expressions of submission that are required of anyone who professes faith in Christ. So this isn't a suggestion. This is a requirement of us. Um, I love the way Pastor Alistair Begg says this. He says, submission to the throne of God demands submission to the law of the state. That's pretty clear. Now, think about the opposite of submission. What would that look like? Here's some antonyms. Defiance, rebellion, insolence, insubordination. So those words describe how God would see an unwillingness to submit to authority that he has put in place. It's getting challenging, isn't it? Kind of convicting. Now, I want us to recognize that Paul is calling for submission in his immediate context. So keep in mind what days Paul lived in. He was actually alive and present when Rome killed the Messiah. That's the government that Paul is saying these Christians are to submit to. And you thought our situation was tough. But let's not stop there. Paul isn't alone. Peter, in 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14, listen to his words. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. It sounds like Peter is certainly agreeing with Paul and he's saying that submission isn't contingent upon the quality of leadership, the personality of leadership, the character of leadership, or even the popularity of leadership. Like none of those things seem to matter. He is just saying we are to be subject for the Lord's sake. Keep in mind, too, Peter, over the span of his life, let's begin with the time when he began his discipleship journey with Jesus all the way up to his death. He actually spanned the reign of four Caesars, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. He wrote First and Second Peter 10 years into Nero's reign, and he was the worst. And yet he's saying, be subject to every institution. So today, we've got an election on Tuesday. Whoever is in the position of king, emperor, president, prime minister, their leadership is to be followed and followed for the honor, glory, and reputation of Christ. That's what's at stake. I I know there's lots of effect, and I'm not minimizing that. But I am saying that the authority in our lives has given us very clear instruction. 
despite what fallen human leaders do with the authority they have been granted, the God-given purposes of government still stand. A bad government is better than no government. That's anarchy. And that's a nightmare I don't think we ever want to live. History has shown that rulers who don't fulfill their basic purposes ultimately fade and others take their place. To summarize, let me say this. We as Christ followers are to submit to government. And I know somebody out there has got to be thinking, well, what if government does fill in the blank? So here's your answer. We are to submit to government unless it forbids what God commands or commands what God forbids. Let me say that again. We are to submit exactly as Paul and Peter and Jesus have commended us to unless that government forbids what God commands or commands what God forbids. If that happens, then we take a posture of civil disobedience. I'm going to give you one example of that out of Acts 5. There are several in Acts. All but one of the apostles lost their lives um, because of this right here. Um, And actually, this wasn't even Rome. This was the the religious cabal again. Uh, The high priest questioned the apostles, saying, "'We strictly charged you not to teach.'" In this name, the name of Jesus, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Here was their response. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. So if you're under a government that commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands then you and I answer to God, not men. And we live with whatever consequences those produce. That's the hard part. That's where we truly trust God in faith. So that's all rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's. Now how about this rendering to God the things that are God's? Well, what is that? What is he talking about? Pastor Tom Nelson loved this quote. He says this, God doesn't mint coins. He creates image bearers. So you've got the face of Caesar on a coin, right? But you have the imprint of your maker on your life. That begins to give you an idea of what it means to render to God the things that are God's. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers... You could put in sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or tribute, you could say. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So, pretty comprehensive. To render to God the things that are God's, we bring ourselves, everything about us, to Him, and we lay it on the altar as a living sacrifice, 
for God to do as he pleases. That's the first thing. Secondly, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, Paul writes to his disciple, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And then he specifies for kings and all who are in high positions. Isn't that interesting? Of all the groups or people that he could have chosen, he specifically focuses on those in authority. And then he gives his rationale for doing that, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. He probably wouldn't say an easy life. He probably wouldn't say a pain-free life. But he says a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, our ultimate authority. That's what pleases him. So a living sacrifice devoted to prayer and humble submission. That is what it means to render to God the things that are God's. It sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? How he modeled that tension of authority and humility, right? And interesting, the response to him after he uh, evaded the trap. Verse 26, it says, They, that is the spies, were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Even his enemies. They just couldn't keep up. So let me give you some closing thoughts here in response to this passage. Um, Honestly, I think we're at our worst when we're trying our best to outsmart God. You know, rather than just saying, God, you tell me what to do and I'm just going to do it, which I know is hard, but we, we try so hard to figure out another angle, another way, another path. In a country where there is more wealth, more freedom, more opportunity than just about any country in all of history, it's very tempting to take the throne for ourselves, to try and be our own God, to navigate our own way and deal with authorities on our own terms rather than as God's representatives. We were all made to live under authority. That is true. There is no such thing as absolute autonomy. Though we might strive after that, though we might convince ourselves we have it, everyone is ultimately subject to authority. Even if it is nothing more than you die, and then we're told after death comes judgment. We're all under authority. Our posture toward earthly authority is a great reflection of our posture toward God's authority, according to these passages. So you and I can actually look at how we relate to those who are in authority over us and get some insight into here as it relates to our following God's direction. I want to ask you some specific questions to help with application. Are you, 
publicly condescending, demeaning, or scathing in comments about local, state, or national leaders. Just be honest with yourself. Do your social media posts reflect the tone God's Word recommends for us to have when we express ourselves? See, that's a way that we demonstrate our submission in terms of how we talk about those that lead us. Finally, and probably most importantly, do you pray for your civic leaders? If so, how often and about what? There may be no better thing that we could ever do as an act of submission to our leaders than to pray for them. To ask God to be God in their lives. You never know what God might do. It is interesting to me that the Lord in the flesh that we're looking at and learning about and talking about this morning, just days before he goes to the cross, remember this whole interaction that we've looked at today, this happened just days. They didn't know it, but he's about to go to the cross. And he is directing all who would follow him to honor him by honoring those he put in authority. Isn't that interesting? We have such a beautiful opportunity here as a church to be different, to be salt and light. And it won't be through power, our power. It'll be through God. So as we shift to a so what, I want to ask you, I, I want to give you some opportunity to pray. I, I just want you to have a conversation with the Lord all by yourself. And uh, let me prompt you in a few ways. Um, first of all, I want to invite you to thank the Lord for grace and truth. I know you guys... This is a heavy message. There's a lot of conviction. I'll remind you, Romans 8, Jeff said it earlier, there is no condemnation. So wherever you are right now, it's all right. God has been so kind to give you and me grace and truth from his word. So thank him for that. Take a moment and pray. Thanksgiving. God brought something to mind, just some way in which you are out of alignment with his heart in, in this respect. And so whatever that is, uh, take a moment uh, for a time of confession. And confession is just agreeing with God about what he has shown you to be true. So just agree with him. Say, God, I see it. And uh, I, I understand. I, I, I know that that's a place where I need to change.
Whatever that is that you confessed, that is your doorway into a thing the Bible calls repentance. So what we do is we turn away from that habit, that attitude, that practice, whatever it is, we turn away from that to God and whatever it is He would have us to do. So just mentally, uh, in prayer, just say to the Lord, Lord, I, I want to, my intention is to turn away from this habit, attitude, or practice, and I want to do something different. Help me to see what that is and to follow through. let's finish again with thanksgiving Um, you and I need to remember all of the time that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases so whatever it is he has shown you today whatever it is he has called you to do you can know that you are enveloped in the love of Christ and he is for you and he wants to help you grow and change he wants to help me grow and change. So thank him for that. Thank God for his steadfast love. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that it is true sharper than any two-edged sword it cuts down to the deep but Lord it is so good thank you for allowing us to see what is right and true and good and honoring to you Lord would you help us this week as we leave this place Lord help us to walk in the things that we have seen and heard today and Lord we trust you so we look at this election and all of the upheaval in our culture and um, we just want to say by faith that um, we trust you and regardless of the outcome uh, we're going to continue to walk in faith and obedience to what you say is is right we thank you for that Lord use this church help us to be salt and light in our culture to the glory of God until Jesus returns In his name we pray.